Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Saxon's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an assistant professor and the Student Affairs Program Coordinator in the College of Education at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we are excited to have Robert Brown, Trudy Desai, and Craig Elliott, the authors of Identity Conscious Supervision in Student Affairs, Building Relationships and Transforming Systems as our guests. They're going to talk about their book and also how it fits in the context of student affairs work. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning and welcome. All right. Before we get started, um, the this is an opportunity for us to get to know a little bit about you and for our listeners to um, learn about you beyond just the current issues and trends that we're talking about in the podcast itself. Um, so since we're all more than just our jobs, Robert, would you mind starting by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey into student affairs? Yes, of course. Um, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I've been, uh, I think as I reflect on my student affairs journey, it kind of goes back to my undergraduate career. I was the overly involved student leader um, and had a very, I guess, traditional pathway to the field in some ways. Um, so I went to undergrad at DePaul University right here in my hometown of Chicago. And a lot of my journey to DePaul um, was quite different than I think how I left DePaul, um, wanting to stay close to home, was very shy, did not want to be very involved. And uh, the wonderful uh, student affairs mentors and, um, and peer leaders that I had a privilege to be in relationship with kind of brought me in, um, kind of really pulled me into this work, um, probably begrudgingly. And I think through a lot of my undergraduate involvement, I learned about the field and really fell in love with it and found a sense of purpose in doing like mentoring activities and leadership programs and um, things related to diversity and inclusion. And so I did my uh, graduate work right after undergrad at Michigan State in their student affairs program had a wonderful experience there. And then met Shruti at WashU um, during my first job working in residence life, um, which was a lot of things. Um, <laughs> you know, much of that experience motivated and inspired a lot of the content of, of, from the book, both in our relationship and broader dynamics on our team. Um, but it was in that time that I think my fire was lit um, to do work directly related to um, equity and social justice. And so um, from WashU, I spent some time at UW-Madison working directly in uh, multicultural student affairs um, at the kind of first season of the Black Lives Matter movement and um, experienced a lot of personal and, prof personal and professional challenges navigating that, um, but gained a lot of skills. I worked there for about three years, but left with a six-year resume, <laughs> um, just given all the complexities um, that we navigated. And in many ways, that prepared me for my current role at Northwestern University where I am now, serving as the Director of Social Justice Education, um, where I get to uh, work with students and faculty and staff uh, to really think more critically about our relationship uh, to each other, to the world around us, uh, to our very, very complex city. Um, and it's in that work that I find uh, deep, deep meaning and purpose um, and feel so grounded and connected to uh, so many of the values that my family instilled in me at, at a very young age. Uh, and about three years ago, 
I decided to go back to school uh, and work on my PhD. Um, so I'm in that. I don't know. I don't have much to say about it. I'm just in it. Uh, so three years in um, at Colorado State in their higher ed leadership program. Uh, and hopefully we'll come out on the other end of this far more insightful and wise than I am now. But in my current state, I just feel like I'm swimming. Um, and I'm from Chicago, live in Chicago, love Chicago, and I live here with my partner and my dog. And much of my you know, broader extended family is also here. Um, and so family is so, so core to who I am and really gives me a sense of, of grounding. And so being able to be back home, particularly right now in our current moment, um, you know, has me feeling, you know, very connected and um, like my personal and professional lives don't have to live in, in separate bubbles, which is really nice. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Shruti, would you be willing to share some of your story? Sure. Um, so I have a different story than Rob, um, which is probably what makes us such good friends. Um, I was the hot mess undergrad student who like drank too much and party too hard. Um, and I was a first gen student, low income. My parents are immigrants. So navigating college was challenging. Um, and back, I'm not that old, but the advances we've made around supporting first gen students on our campuses is really profound compared to when I was in college. Um, I went to a small private school, religiously affiliated Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. I grew up in the Atlanta metro area um, and was choosing between the University of Georgia and Mercer and probably best that I went to a small private school. Um, and, you know, as any good conduct process does, I was given a second chance um, and really an opportunity to reflect and learn um, and then became the over-involved student um, and did a lot. I was only, we only had, there were only two other South Asian students on campus when I was there. And so that was a whole um, identity exploration for me to understand what it meant to be South Asian. Um, and growing up in Atlanta Metro, there was a lot of, I had a huge South Asian community um, and went to a predominantly black high school. So it was a little bit different of a experience and kind of jarring. Um, and out of undergrad, I had a degree in psychology and, you know, what, what do you do with that? Um, but I worked, um, we had a center for community development and worked there with the first gen scholarship program. And that really fueled my fire for um, working with college students, working with first gen students and um, the really the impact that we get to make as professionals. So from there, being the kid of immigrants, um, you know, my parents really wanted me to stay close and I felt responsible to stay close to support them. I have a much younger sister um, and wanted to help her kind of navigate high school and college. So stayed there, um, ended up at the University of Georgia and they were like, do you want to work in res life? And I was like, cool, if we place to live and tuition and the stipend, yeah, sign me up for that. Um, had no res life experience, didn't know what a door deck was or duty or on, like I was lost um, and really got into the field more to do diversity inclusion work, leadership work. Um, but I think res life really gave me a foot as a generalist. Um, from there, I did the whole job search process with NASPA and TBE and um, ended up at Texas Tech University. I had family out there. So my parents were like, yeah, you can go there. Someone will keep an eye on you. 
um, and had a good South Asian community there as well, which has been really been important to me. Um, I worked there in Res Life, and that part of why I took that position is I had the opportunity to supervise two graduate students right out of the gate, which is not something that new, a lot of new professionals get to do. Um, so that really started my supervision journey in a different way. Um, and then from there, I was, the person I was dating at the time was from Kansas. So I took a job at Res Life at the University of Kansas. Um, that relationship ended and I was like, all right, let's get out of Kansas. Um, and so, and then had now, I met my now wife there um, and she is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So compromise is the key to marriage, right? Um, and we were, so we were looking in Nashville and St. Louis because it's kind of middle for both of us. Um, ended up in St. Louis at WashU as an associate director and that's where I met Rob and where I met Craig. Um, and really it was an eye-opening experience because it's an elite private school. You know, 50% of the students pay full tuition um, and coming from two, three state schools where it's kind of the average middle class, lower middle class student, um, it was eye-opening how much resources can change kind of the work that we do, um, great endowment, all those things. Um, and then supervision was really I was supervising a huge team and lots of dynamics and other stuff. Um, and then started my doc program. I took an assistant vice president job at McKendree University. It's a small private school on the Missouri-Illinois border. Um, and then due to budget cuts, needed to find something new. Um, so that's when I took this chief of staff role. It's on the academic side of the house. So it's really given me a larger understanding of the university landscape as opposed to just student affairs. Um, and it has some marketing and fundraising, just skills that we don't always get in student affairs. So I think it's expanded my portfolio and my business sense too, and how we do work in higher education. Um, so I live in St. Louis, um, have lived here now for nine years, longer than I'd ever thought I'd be here. Um, but we have great community here and we have two dogs and a cat. Um, and eventually we'll want to get back to the South uh, to be closer to family, as Rob said, my family is of the utmost importance to me. So, um, but for now, we're we're holding steady and we're happy here. Great, thank you so much, Craig. How about you? All right, um, yeah, I think uh, similar. Uh, well, so it's funny. I, I think um, I, undergrad, I was similar to Rob's experience, but uh, the rest of it, I had similar to Shruti's experience about being the hot mess. So it'll be interesting. To, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I went to, um, I went to, uh, St. Mary's college in California, a small liberal arts, um, yeah, school, which is great. You know, I, I was drawn to that small place and, and really being uh, cared for. And I, you know, I was, I was an RA, I was doing crew, intramural sports, theater, newspaper, all that stuff. And, uh, and for me, it was a, like a grand, um, adventure and like opening my eyes to the way the world was um and but um it also helped be it was the beginning really of that process of me solidifying yeah kind of my social justice journey or beginning that social justice journey of of you know raised in the suburbs in california and really didn't have much um insight into the way to what was happening in the world around us so college was really my first chance to be able to see, oh, hey, there's other things happening out here. Um, I went to grad school and supervision and started through Res Life and housing and did um, 
did my, my degrees there and, and eventually got a job where I was supervising. Um, and one of the things I realized quite quickly, and this is the mess part about, I really struggled to supervise uh, professionals. And a lot of that was, um, well, it was, you know, we were all young. So that's also part of it is, you know, what did we know when we were 20s in our 20s? Um, but I, kind of looking back the recognition about what a mess I was um, and sorting through, um, sorting through myself and growth and who am I and what, I, what do I need and how do I fit into this larger world and how do I make a difference um, and, and what I know now. Um, but I didn't really have the words to articulate then. How do I, who am I in these identities and how do they fit into the world and what can I do about it? Um, and one of the first, uh, so that coupled with uh, my first supervision job was uh, in, I was also in charge of setting the community standards in a residence hall. And, you know, writing the policy every year and updating it and, but then beginning to compare what I was writing as policy about what we needed as community standards with what I was seeing on the judicial and the conduct end about who was coming into our, through the conduct process for what violations and realizing that there was uh, a disparate impact on um, our community standards. And so, um, so th I was fortunate enough that that's the time when Jamie Washington, Kathy O'Bear, Maura Carlin, and Vernon Wall started the Social Justice Training Institute. Um, and so I went to that knowing that I need to better, if I'm gonna do this well, um, do this profession well, I need to really better understand who am I and how does this system work and when kind of deepen my training experience. And so that's exactly what SJTI was for me. Um, and and a, a mind blowing, rock my world. Um, blew everything up like it took me a couple years just to sort through it because it was so profound of a paradigm shift um, that then kind of led me to a doctoral degree Rob you're going to be all right <laughs> we've all felt that <laughs> that fuzz and in, in, in the program but uh, um, you know it really helped uh, me catalyze work I wanted to do um, through the through my doctoral program and through SJTIs, where I ended up meeting um, Becky Martinez, and we started to talk and do some work together. Um, and it was out of that that I was able to come to WashU and meet Truthy and Rob, um, also SJTI alums. So it was kind of connecting small worlds. Um, but it was um, it was making those things connect. And part of um, part of one of my big insights to who am I in this work was recognizing that, or me appreciating that I didn't have people like who looked like me, white men in, in the world, in the profession, trying to do their part and trying to lead other white people to do their part. Um, and so, and as I look back, I was like, I wished I would have had somebody to talk to, um, to just help navigate some of this process. Um, and so I, the, one of my early insights was to be like, okay, I want to be, I want to be that person. I want to be public. I want to be visible. I want to be having these conversations and to help bring other people along um, with us. Um, I think that's kind of started well-intendedly like most things. Um, I think what really solidified it for it was becoming a dad and, and then really realizing that um, I have two white boys and if I don't do anything else, um, if I don't figure out how to interrupt that system and put them on a different path, they're going to end up being two other white boys in the world and probably not the kind that we need. 
Um, so really for me was uh, okay, the, that really deep visceral kind of felt connection about here's where that work is um, and, and how do I make that happen? And so that I want to do it for my kids and I want to do it for everybody's kids. Great. Thank you all very much. Um, I guess continuing on the get to know you sort of wave, um, Shruti, would you talk a little bit about um, some of your hobbies? I know you said you have, I think you said two dogs and a cat. So those may be hobbies, those may be obligations. It might depend on the day, but what are, what are some of the other things you do um, outside of work? Yeah, it definitely depends on the day. Um, the, yeah, outside of work, um, I don't know if this is like professional appropriate, but I really do love making cocktails. Um, and through this like COVID season, I've like, I have COVID cocktails that I just try different recipes and it's been fun. Um, I'm a whiskey bourbon drinker, so I stick to those. Um, I like to read, I read a lot um, and um, we are really lucky to have good communities. So I spend a lot of time with my people and then love cooking dinner. Um, and thankfully I still like am wild about my wife. And so I really appreciate and enjoy spending time with her. Um, she's the funniest person I know. So we laugh a lot and cut up a lot. Thank goodness you still enjoy her. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Especially after all this time cooped up together. Great. Thank you so much. Um, Craig, how about you? Yeah. Um, so I, I do learn from Shruti's cocktail making, that's for sure. I have much, much to learn from as, a, as an apprentice. Um, I love soccer. Uh, that's for me is a, is a great joy in the world. Uh, you know, it's been hard not to play, um, but uh, certainly watched it a lot on TV. Um, love movies. Um, you know, all the streaming places that I can sign up for, I will. Um, but I love, I love adventure um, and um, great writing. I used to read a lot, don't so much anymore. Um, but I think it's also, I think spending time as a family has been a kind of local thing. So, what, you know, what hikes can we do? Um, camping with the kids and, and the family has also been, been a good time. So outdoors, um, but uh, yeah, soccer, soccer is the big love. Great. And how about you, Robert? Hobbies? What are, what are those? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I love all things food. Uh, Cooking, eating, eating out um, are like big passion areas for me. Um, also, like most of what little downtime I have, I use to spend with um, family. Or my, I have a, a new young niece, and so that's um, a lot of fun. Uh, but most of my time is spent, you know, reading and um, taking higher ed policy right now. So a lot of the policy papers has been uh, the primary focus. Um, but our class is kind of ramping up to read um, a third university as possible is uh, kind of how we're wrapping up the class. And I'm really excited about that and looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, a lot of <laughs> like, you know, working full time and being in school, it can create very little time. Um, for hobbies, but I try to make sure I'm getting at least one day a week um, to just breathe and do some things that I enjoy. Great. There will be more time in the future, honest, so. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good to claim it now, too, so. Um, oh, would each of you be willing to share a favorite quote 
and it can be something that motivates you or inspires you. It can just be something that brings some light into your life, whatever, whatever kind of resonates with you. Craig, do you have a quote? Uh, yeah. So uh, I think one of the, one of my favorites that I'm holding on to these days is by Cahill Gibran. Um, and uh, uh, it's a, to, to paraphrase it, I'm not going to get it quite right, but that uh, the, the wise are only wise because they love and that um, it's, you know, our wisdom's not in our, in our brains and our minds, but it's in our hearts. And how do we, for me, it's this inspiration about how do we continue to live fully in love in our hearts and, um, uh, and, and in communities and um, just be in the world from that loving place. Great. Um, how about you, Robert? Do you have a quote? Yeah, I love um, the Maya Angelou quote that uh, I've learned that people will um, forget what you said, um, forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And um, I think the feelings work is something I often come back to. I think something I distance myself from quite a bit um, and um, through some of my own self-work and um, working through my own identities, like, you know, connecting with um, the heart, I think has been something that uh, I try to put into the world and also kind of invite folks to experience with me. Um, so we're not kind of moving as robots disconnected from one another. Great, thank you. And Shruti, what about you? Yeah, mine is a quote from um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King um, that says, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at, at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. And I think, for me, that has resonated through time, um, because I think sometimes we, in this cancel culture environment, we cancel people and want justice without holding love. Um, or we just want to say, <clears throat> if everyone is nice to each other, racism will end. And that's not true either. And so um, I appreciate the nuance of, of both of those things um, and how he's calling us to hold both of those things. That's really beautiful how the three of you, I mean, it does sound like love and care are things that center you, center your work, and um, definitely probably a catalyst for the book as well. So um, I appreciate that. All right, one more get to know you activity and then we'll talk about your work. So I have this completely unscientific, untested theory that when it comes to people who work in higher education and student affairs, there are fall people and there are spring people. And so the fall people get energy from the planning and come on everybody and sort of that that kicking off the year um which is going to look very different this fall than other falls but still enthusiasm around that part of it whereas the spring people i think of as not that they aren't ready for students and staff and collaborators and colleagues to come back but they maybe get more energy from the reflective part at the end. You know, what did we achieve? What's left to achieve? Um, what do we want to replicate in the future? What do we want to change for the future? 
So as each of you think about how you experience the academic year, would you consider yourself to be more of a fall person or more of a spring person? And I will let you all decide who goes first because that's just how, how fluid and go with the flow I am as we all must be right now. So fall or spring? I have a clear out of the gate. I'm fully full. I think being in Res Life, opening everything that's new, we get a new chance. We forget about the disaster that happened last year or whatever. Um, I'm really bummed about like what this fall is going to look like. So I think that tells me clearly that I'm a fall person. Great. Yeah, I think I would pretty clearly say I'm a fall too. I, I have total energy from the fall. The spring I'm exhausted. Um, and but I always look forward to that starting up again. So uh, I'll, I'll take a different direction. Uh, other than college football, I, I think I'm yeah. a spring person. I love graduation. I love pop and circumstance. Um, I love bawling my eyes out. Like I was sitting in my living room this year <laughs> watching virtual graduation, crying it out. Uh, and then I love reflecting on the year. So big end of reflection so being able to be in conversation and self-reflective or with my team through the lens of supervision um you know i think there's a lot of learning at that time of year beautiful all right well thank you all very much i appreciate that um so you've talked a little bit about both your individual journeys into higher education student affairs and and where you are now and you identified some points of connection and intersection for the three of you. Can you share a little bit more about how, how did the book idea start? How did the three of you identify each other as this is the team I wanna work with um, to produce this? What's the, I guess, the story behind the book? If you would tell us a little bit about that. Sure, I can kick this off and folks wanna add. Um, so a lot of it kind of started from, uh, Shruti and I, uh, did a, uh, conference session at NASPA, uh, this is maybe now four or five years ago, and much of kind of why we did that conference session was once I left WashU and got into my first role supervising full-time staff, um, I realized like this is much harder than <laughs> it looks and um, particularly across identities and um, which was kind of showing up in my uh, supervision experience at that moment and Shruti was my previous supervisor and so I you know reached out to her for some support and guidance mentorship um, I'm like what do I do you know and through some of those conversations one, I learned that I had given Truthy a really hard time <laughs> um, in a lot of different ways. And then two, that we weren't, um, you know, the only ones who were, you know, exploring these questions and ne needing to have these conversations. So a lot of our desire to start kind of engaging with other student affairs colleagues wasn't so much that we had kind of this magic potion or the solution, um, but it was a deep desire to um, kind of create more conversation and bring more people in to our own kind of process of reflection of some of the nuances of supervision 
broadly and just in general, and then particularly in the context of identity. And so uh, it was, you know, really relevant in our supervisory relationship, particularly, you know, across race and gender um, that kind of came up. And as I was navigating um, my experience at WashU as like one of very few Black men on campus and Tracy trying to kind of support me in that um, herself, but also kind of connect me to other folks um, in the field and in her networks. And, um, and so we learned a lot about each other through that process, but also a lot about kind of how do we engage in relationships where supervisors and supervisees can make their needs known, um, particularly through um, a relationship that has transparency um, around the importance of identity and how that shows up for us and how that creates um, barriers and trust and mistrust and, um, and opportunities right, for, for growth and learning. And so that was a lot of kind of the initial impetus. And then we kind of kept working and we wanted to kind of just broaden perspective. And um, we had a chance to connect with Craig um, during our time at WashU. Um, and much of kind of what he came in and did some work with our team around was our team dynamics and supervisory dynamics. And um, we just thought that he would offer some great perspective. And then the three of us started doing some pre-conference sessions uh, and our publisher at Routledge, um, after one of those sessions reached out to us, which I didn't even know that was a thing that publishers do. <laughs> um, but they reached out and, you know, and just shared that they're really intrigued by our topic and thought it was really needed in the field and um, kind of asked us if we have ever thought about, you know, writing a book. And um, <laughs> the three of us looked at each other <laughs> like, no, uh, but sure. And so it was kind of that, you know, that sure leap of faith, why not energy um, that kind of got us at least initially into the process. And then from there, uh, it was truly a, a, a labor of love and a journey with lots of ups and downs. Great. Anything to add? Yeah, just the other thing that I would add, um, Rob did a great job and he did give me a harder time than he knew. Um, but um, we, I think the other piece when we were setting up our pre-con, just looking at the literature in higher ed and student affairs, there just isn't a lot around supervision generally, and then definitely not much around the intersection of identity and supervision. And so I think that led us, when the book came, topic came up of, yeah, let's really do this because there's a clear void in student affairs and higher ed around this topic. And when we're thinking about, I know each of us can name tons of people, folks of color particularly, who have left the field. And so in order for us to really honor the work that we're doing and to retain really awesome, um, folks of color in student affairs, this, I think there was some, for me, some like obligation responsibility to um, help our field kind of improve in that area. Um, we pulled a lot from the world of counseling, but, um, and I don't know that counseling does it perfectly, but that's where a lot of the content came from and, and that hopefully will start to shift in our field as we get more and more professionals who are studying this intersection. All right. Um, so one of the things that in looking at the book and looking at how you had it set up, I really appreciate about um, this one. Well, I appreciate multiple lines, not just this one, but this one really struck me. 
Um, early on, it's on page six, you write, the messaging we receive about supervision is often limited to do not play favorites or treat everyone the same. And then you go on to talk about how the notion of sameness and identity neutral uh, supervision rather than identity conscious supervision is um, problematic. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen people navigate this well or not, and maybe even some of your own experiences, um, because there are these sort of, I don't know, cliches or catchphrases about what supervision is. And I just appreciate that from the get-go, you pushed back against some of that and said, um, you know, we need to look at people holistically. And um, that those aren't the messages that we get, um, certainly in programs, which there aren't a lot of programs that have a true supervision course. So a lot of us learn how to supervise as supervisors, um, which is challenging in a number of ways too. So can you talk a little bit about kind of that as a starting point and how you built the text around that? And I'd also be interested, I don't know if you've gotten any pushback on it. If people have said, no, actually, you're headed down the wrong road here, either writing through the process um, as supervisors now that the book is out. So there are like 17 questions in one question there. So you can answer whatever you want to answer there. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I think that you, you touched on an important piece about that, you know, all of us learned on the job. And I think there was an early recognition of that, that that is exactly how we learned. Um, and you know, us recognizing that, you know, that's the, the kind of the dominant cultural norms have communicated this, that, you know, treat everybody the same and, uh, and identity is not to be brought into the office. I think we, one of, I think it was Rob who was telling an early story about, um, you know, identity doesn't leave that at the door. Um, and I think, I think we felt through our own experience, through, through discussing this about, how we wanted it to be brought in and it was an important dynamic um, and um, and about how and about how it that was also the world we wanted to create like it wasn't just about supervision but we also wanted to be in the profession and be in the world be in our campuses with this kind of authentic authenticity about who we are but also being able to know people for who they are um, in their fullness. And so really wanted to start off and, and kind of frame the book from, from that way. Um, it's interesting, you know, I think it's, I've not heard anybody, any pushback on this. I think by and large, everybody who um, that I've heard from has responded. They're like, what, what? <laughs> wow. And it, which is so funny to me because it is, it, it doesn't seem like it's this, big thing to be able to say, yeah, identity matters, but it, in some ways it, it was a profound and obvious naming of important, important dynamics um, in the work we do. Um, and so, so at least I think people, people are really resonating with that, which, which I, I really appreciate. Great. All right. 
So the way you have your book set up, um, it's divided into three sections. And it talks about taking action at the identity, supervision, and organizational levels. Um, now, after Rutledge comes to you and says, hey, do you want to write a book? And you're like, okay, sure. Then you have to figure out the how, you know, and you could have structured it probably in an unlimited number of ways. How did you decide these are the pieces um, and, and this is how we're going to navigate this topic and talk about the issues that we want to talk about? So winding road, I think is kind of, <laughs> you know, it's not, uh, I wish I could tell you from point A, you know, this was our intention. Uh, I think we initially started the process thinking about some key components of supervision, um, how to weave identity into those components. So things like, you know, navigating power dynamics, uh, things like engaging conflict, um, what how we bring our self-awareness into you know those are some things that were early on that are in the book but early on were clear to us that we knew we needed to to write about and Craig talked a little earlier about our all of our relationships to SJTI and the more that we kind of talked we started thinking about um, identity conscious supervision through much of the, the training that we got through that so um, so thinking about individual group systems um, as a framework and how do we map that onto the context of supervision. So what, what work do you need to do um, to be an effective identity conscious supervision, supervisor at the individual level? So uh, self-reflection, creating a really strong sense of self, um, how do you ground yourself? Like where some of the questions that we started thinking about, what is your own um, history around supervision and how does that maybe inform your lens um, to then thinking about interpersonally what are some things to think about at the relational level um, that are happening directly within um, the supervisory relationship and we kind of clustered some things um, in that regard and then uh, particularly like you know within my experience as a young professional as um, um, a black man, you know, staff of color working in the field. Um, I've had a lot of really nice, like well-intentioned people who treated me well, right? So who were supportive of me at the individual level um, and at the interpersonal level, like we had a good relationship, but I rarely saw the like fruits of our relationship um, start to address kind of some of the broader issues that Shruti named um, around recruitment and retention of people of color just more broadly and systemically in the field um, or other minoritized groups as well. And so we got to thinking about, um, you know, our work as good supervisors also needs to impact the broader um, organizational structures and, and start to root, root out those inequities either at the departmental, divisional, or institutional level. And so, um, crafting that kind of third level around um, how do we sustain identity conscious practice um, kind of across those different levels of engagement within an organization. Um, how do we think about um, our role influencing um, kind of policy at a human resource level? Um, how do we advocate 
and use kind of the, the capital and the power that student affairs has, uh, often has as a division uh, within higher education, one of the kind of largest employee bodies within an institution to, you know, push uh, the institution to create, um, you know, equitable policies and practices across the institution that aren't necessarily unique to solely to student affairs or solely to an individual department. I think one of the things too that I would add, I think we were also really clear from the beginning that we didn't want to write a theoretical book. We really wanted to write an experiential, you know, kind of ground level piece so that it would be useful. Um, we, we had hopes that it would be useful, but really that it was, we were writing from that um, experiential place. Um, but I think, you know, I echo how Ron, uh, Rob talked about it was, you know, this kind of winding road about, you know, we started one way and reorganized it a couple of different times and, and pulled it together and um, very pleased about how it's, how it's shaped up. Yeah, I think the only other piece I would add is if you look at the chapter titles, we intentionally at one point, like we had written most of the content and then we were going back and like talking about chapter titles, which feels so like mundane and unimportant, but it became really important to our book in that each one of our chapters titles starts with some kind of verb or action um, and really trying to make sure that this is like an ongoing active thing. It's not like you just arrive at identity conscious supervision someday. Um, I think the other piece we talked about really starting at the center of um, individual relationship with self and others is I think a lot of times I see particularly younger professionals come in and are like, I'm going to dismantle X, Y, and Z and um, like burn the whole place down and, but they haven't done their internal work. And so when you haven't unlearned and dismantled your own stuff, you have a, I have a tendency to duplicate that um, and not and function from pain as opposed to and hold everyone else accountable for pain as opposed to how do we do this holistically and in a way that is sustained um, and allows us to be more creative and imagine something that we've never thought of because we're still stuck in our pain and our own stuff. Um, so I think it's the hope is that if you don't do anything, you do some of your own self work um, and then that leads to kind of healing and some influence influential change in the department and university level. Great. And, and all of this actually leads to and starts to address the next couple of questions I had, but um, the, the timeliness of the release of this book, you couldn't have planned for it to come out at a more critical time. Um, and, you know, a lot of what's happening is not new but it's visible in different ways than maybe it has been in the past. When you think about the, um, and I appreciate you referenced the utility of the book, what, in what ways do you think this is especially important right now in student affairs? And how would you, like ideally, how would you like to see um, the profession use the book, whether it's in practice on the academic side where where would you love to see this showing up and and um, being used to inform practice? Yeah, uh, if we could change the world, right? Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I think for, I mean, with COVID, with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, the xenophobia that's going on, there's a lot of folks who are being impacted, people with disabilities, there are a lot of folks being impacted um, by COVID and the Black Lives Movement. And so I think if, if you weren't talking about this um, and how it's impacting your team and one another, the current context is gonna compel you to talk about this. Um, or there's, I think, gonna be more harm caused. I think we talk a lot about mattering and belonging with undergraduates, but we don't often talk about it with our professional staff. And we need to be talking about it with our professional staff because it's just as important, if not more important. Um, if you look at like retention, how retention is impacted when there's folks who share identities with students in the margins, their retention and graduation rate is significantly higher. And so if we're not retaining and graduating professional staff, that's gonna have a direct impact on our undergraduates. And so I think that's my hope is that we'll start thinking about that. Even if it's like a, we wanna improve graduation rates, cool, here's a way to do that. Um, and I think in practice, there's case studies at the end of each chapter. If you know they were reading a chapter and doing a case study once a month or something, I think that's how we wrote the book. Um, it's not meant to necessarily be read in a linear progression. So if they wanted to take, we're facing this, let's talk about it um, and do that. That would be, that's a great way to do it. Great. And I think, I think for, for me, I would, you know, I, I have this, this, this realization that no, like anything that I've done thus far to try to make a difference in the world hasn't changed much. Um, and so for me, um, and there's, there's, you know, there's anger and sorrow about that and uh, um, still that element of hope. Um, and so I'm, my hope in this is that it's we that we need to find new strategies we, so and and a lot of that is um we need to have different kinds of conversations on our on our college and university campuses we need to have different kinds of conversations with each other um as we are educating the next generation of leaders and citizens um we need to better understand systemic um oppression um, to make influences um, and to begin to shift those systems and rebuild them in, in liberatory ways, not just replicate them in different ways. Um, and so I think for me, it's, um, and, and for me, that was part of what I, I think what we all tried to put into that book, um, this kind of liberatory um, new way of moving forward. Um, but I think that's, it really is is crystallized with everything that we're experiencing right now, and um, just that that clarity of um, how I show up in my job on campus. Like I need to, um, I need to be practicing. I need to be educating and leading and practicing in different ways um, to try to figure out how we make some headway on this, and so that we don't continue to have the same thing happen over and over and over again. I think for me, um, there's a chapter in the book um, where I um, kind of reflect on uh, the murder of Eric Gardner. And, um, and as I experienced that, I was at work when I, you know, watched that, that video and kind of the first time that we had heard, uh, I can't breathe. And, um, and I remember being you know, alone, kind of watching that at work um, as a black staff member. 
and then one of my black colleagues also uh, in the department came and joined me and you know, we, we sat and mourned and uh, kind of took that in um, together in community. But then we um, went back to work, right? So uh, just outside of our my office door, you know, students were gathering, right? And, and so it was just this immediately this quick moment of kind of going back to to work to business as usual um, when things were so so far from usual, uh, familiar, but certainly not usual, <laughs> and um, and so it's kind of in that experience that um, kind of we talk about how do you show up for uh, marginalized minoritized folks on your staff in these types of moments, right? And it's not just um, moments impacting um, Black folks, that's obviously very prevalent right now, um, but as you think about changes in um, legislation around trans healthcare and like when that, when that lands and how that lands on staff members, um, when there's legislation about, um, you know, how women have access to healthcare or not, uh, that lands on people and it like lives in them. When there's uh, news stories that are like, constantly spewing uh, xenophobic messaging, like that lands on people and it lives in them. And our need to see that um, and then to create space for folks to um, be supported to maybe take a step back um, is is so so critical and so we've got some uh, multiple narratives throughout the book that I think kind of speak to that dynamic and how supervisors can show up and some tools that they can use in those moments um, both for their their staff members but also for themselves as well which we really talk about it as a uh, communal process and as I think about like my hopes for how folks use this book is um, in community. So, you know, reading it individually, but, you know, having a, a reading partner or a book club or, you know, reading it with other supervisors so that there can be um, kind of more narratives, right? We have our stories are in the book. We have case study author stories that are in the book, um, but we all have our stories related to supervision, good, bad, and other. And so um, to have individuals be able to kind of wrestle with some of the content and um, some of the tools that we share, but then to map that onto some of their own experiences and kind of open up much needed dialogue is one of my biggest hopes. Great. Have you, I, and I know it's still relatively hot off the presses, but have you heard back from people about um, ways that the book has been used or ways that um, different organizations or departments might be hoping or planning to use the book? Who's taking it? So, yeah, yes. Um, and I think, um, and I think as, as Rob talked about, I think that there's some, you know, we've, we've heard from a, a couple of departments that are purchasing the book for their whole teams and they're engaging in the, and the, the, the professional development approach to that. Um, but we've also heard, of, so, it, and we've some classes, some higher ed, ed classes, um, grad prep classes um, are using as part of uh, books and, and, and a course. Um, but we also like small teams. I think I've just seen individuals kind of take it upon themselves and saying, we're gonna do a book club about this book um, and start this conversation. Um, so I think it's, it's, all, it's all up and down, which is, you know, it's exciting um, to hear 
all the the new ways that people are using it. And and I think we're still finding out other ways people are using it as they kind of reach out and contact us and and we're like, oh, we didn't think about that. Um, so that's great. Well, good. Um, all right. So now you're experts because you've written this book. Um, do you have, based on your own experiences, you're sharing with each other as you were building the text, um, you know, information related to the case studies, what advice would you offer to new professionals from their side of the relationship about building these types of um, holistic and attentive supervisory partnerships? Do you have, have words of advice for, I guess, for the supervisee? Um, and then of course the follow-up will be for the supervisors, but, but specifically for the new employee in building that relationship, do you have suggestions? Um, it could be do's, it could be maybe do nots, depending on, um, like I say, your own experiences or things you've heard other people share. Um, kick us off, I would say, you know, it's really important to think about supervision for a job. And so to think about not only like, what is this job that I'm looking to, to be hired for, but who am I going to do this job with? So even before that relationship starts, I, I really encourage um, folks on the job market or new professionals to ask about supervision um, in, those, in their interview process. Uh, so learning a little bit about supervision style, um, can you tell me about kind of how identity shows up in your supervision, right? When you um, and are in that process, it, it both communicates a level of expectation and value to the person who um, will be supervising you and gives you an opportunity before you're in the organization to kind of calibrate <laughs> around their response. Um, once you're in that relationship, I think early on in a relationship or at this time of year, right, as we move into a new school year, it's a really good time to, to clarify expectations. Um, and one of the things we talk about in the book is that expectations um, you know, are often thought of in a hierarchical way, they're only top down, um, but we really believe in the importance of shared expectations. So um, the supervisors having their expectations of their supervisees, but supervisees also sharing like, here's what I need to feel supported. Here's what I need to feel so, uh, trusted within my work. Um, here are the places that I'm wanting to go in terms of goals and how I see you know, you know, our work together helping me on that path and making that very clear and doing maybe some reflection before that conversation. And sometimes, you know, a supervisor might prompt that conversation, but sometimes not. And so for a supervisee to uh, kind of move into like a one-on-one -on -one or, uh, you know, some type of formal com conversation to say, you know, I think it'd be really helpful for us to talk a little bit about expectations and, and goals this year. Um, you know, I, I'm learning a lot, you know, about myself and about what I, what I need to feel successful and contribute my best to this organization. And, I'm, you know, hoping we can you know, just have a conversation where we can share 
a little bit about, you know, how I could support you in this work and then, um, you know, and I could do the same in return. And to, to open that up, I think at, from a place of curiosity and invitation versus what I see some young professionals or folks newer in the organization who are lacking that trust or who have been harmed in the past kind of come into that conversation um, almost like out of expectation where it's like, you're supposed to be, like, you have to take care of my needs or like, why haven't you asked me about expectations? And I think some of that entrance into the conversation then paints what conversation will, will be in, in more of like a negative light. But I think for, um, to engage it from a place of, of invitation or like this would help me to be successful um, typically lands much better. Yeah, I would add, I think um, a lot of times there's expectations put on supervisors for them to be supervisors and mentors and life coaches and therapists. And um, you can't, there's very few people that can be all things to all supervisees. Um, and so it, I think it's really important for new professionals to also find a mentor in the field um, so they can talk through like, hey, I'm feeling this or I'm struggling with this. I think sometimes as new professionals, and I, I was guilty of this too, I went to my peers and then we create this like misery loves company type of situation as opposed to someone a little bit wiser and a little more experienced to say like, have you, I mean, to Rob's point, like, have you thought about this approach? Have you thought about maybe everything that they're holding? Have you particularly right now with COVID and um, all the work that we need to do around marginalized, minoritized students, um, budget cuts. You know, there's a lot that supervisors also hold and sometimes don't share with folks they supervise to protect them, to manage anxiety, those kind of things. Um, so I think finding a mentor is, is really critically important as, as a new professional, even as a seasoned professional. I know all three of us have mentors that were like, what can you, what the hell is going on? Like, I need to understand. <laughs> Um, and so I think that that would be the other piece that I would add. And then just, you know, sometimes I think being honest with yourself, um, and what's your locus of control. You, if you're seeing a pattern with the supervisor and you just, you've done what you can do, having the honest conversation with yourself about, is this the right organization and the right fit for me? Um, and sometimes it's not right. Sometimes you thought it was something and you, it turns out it's not, and that's okay. That's not. A personal failure or anything else it's just a matter of this isn't the right place and I need to find a different place and I think that that's okay and in, in giving yourself space to do that great I think one of the things I would add um, you know I think the the this uh, the younger generation um, and our new professionals have a lot more awareness um, about identities and issues than than I did at the same space and so it's wonderful um, and I think sometimes they don't always have the, the knowledge and the skills um, uh, to support effective action. And so I think it's also the kind of that recognition and I think tying into what Shruti and Rob have both said too about um, really I think um, the invitation I think is a wonderful um, entry point into this and um, recognizing that we all have things to grow and to learn about, to deepen our knowledge, to deepen our skills, um, so that we can then continue to be um, effective in our action uh, collectively. Um, and I think that's a, a really important um, 
growth and development that I wish to see in the field for all of us. Well, along those same lines, so originally when we were talking about what we would discuss today, I had sort of flipped the question and said, okay, how about new supervisors? But then Robert, you made a great point that just because you're an experienced supervisor doesn't mean one, that you're effective in a general sense, but two, you might have some strengths, but this might not be the way that you've done the work. And so, and all of you have referred to this being an ongoing process. It's not, okay, now I, I do this and I don't have to worry about continuing to learn. What, what guidance or advice would you give to supervisors new or experienced about continuing to engage and continuing to um, learn new ways and just sort of keep up with the needs of their supervisees. Yeah, we, we got work to do. Um, we old people, we elders. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, yeah, it's just, I think it's that recognition and um, appreciation that we still have worth, work to do and growth to do. And I think we, we've all talked about this, uh, Rob Shruti and I, um, that we recognize that there's people in the field who feel like they, who act like they've arrived. Um, but either in their position or in their own development. And um, so I think we are, we are a part of a, a, a generation of professionals that say, yeah, our growth is ongoing. Um, there's, it, because it's people, you, we're working with people and they grow and develop. And so, you know, our, our, our staffs change. Um, and so we always have new people coming in. We have, but our students, I mean, the students that we're working with today are vastly different than the ones we were working with five years ago or even 10 years ago, um, et cetera. Um, so I think it's, I think that's the big part about it. Um, I think my, um, my big advice is to, uh, for a couple of things. One is as supervisors, as, as uh, with experience, it's also important for us to be raising these conversations or, or um, introducing identity consciousness into the supervisory relationship um, and kind of making that part of our norms. And I think it's really important that we um, are leading or, or a part of at least a part, an equal part about those conversations and how identities show up in individual relationships, but also dynamics. At the same point, I think it's also that we're also honoring and recognizing the, the power differential um, and that um, lots of people have used their power for harm. And so, um, and so there's legitimate fear and concern about um, being vulnerable in some of those relationships because um, of what it could cost people because of how people have misused that power. And so really, I think it's, it's this is where the relationship matters so much to be able to develop the relationship and the trust as a foundation for begin to have these kinds of conversations and figure out how that, how you can work with uh, the people that you supervise um, in different and new ways, um, because our, our students need it, our campus is needed, the profession needs it. Um, yeah, please. Just, just One thing I would add, oh, go ahead. sorry, Rob, um, is, to find folks to do the work with. I think 
your supervisee cannot be the person you process your growth around identity or I got stuck in this or whatever. Um, there's a way to have that conversation that indicates like, I know I caused you harm and um, I'm sorry. And here's what I've read or done or whatever, but the, it can't be like your, your space. So I think finding a community across identities is really critical um, to talk about, I'm struggling with this or I did this or whatever, and then finding some space to process through that, um, thinking about what you're reading, thinking about what you're listening to um, and how we continue to, how you continue to do your professional development um, around these things. It's just one piece I would add to Craig's. All right. Okay, so, um, as we sort of wrap up, any concluding thoughts, ideas, anything important I forgot to ask that you want to talk about? Or did I do such a good job that we're in wrap-up mode? We're good? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thank you all very much. Um, you know, just in an effort to kind of leave with, and I think this book is about hope. I think this book is um, aspirational. And so it's not like we've gotten to this very dreary place and we need to lift ourselves up. But I mean, we have to acknowledge that there's work to be done. Um, as you think about some things that sort of bring you joy and keep you fighting the fight and doing the work, um, would each of you be willing to share a couple of things in your life that right now, as you're engaging in the work, do kind of lift you up and, and bring you some joy and hope? Robert, would you like to start? Sure. Um, you know, a lot of things. And I think hope is so critical. Uh, and, and, you know, Duncan Andrade writes about you know, a, a critical hope. And so how do we still... Um, hold the tension of what we're navigating, um, but kind of invite in um, hope as, as we move through it. And so some of the things that um, con are continuing to give me hope are uh, the people that I'm doing the work with. So, um, you know, community is essential. Um, and so that is, uh, you know, Shruti and Craig kind of continue to serve as, you know, a piece of my community. And um, I, I'm so, so privileged to have so many people who have kind of poured into me um, and kind of hold me up. And, um, you know, I think this is a power for folks to um, make sure that others are feeling seen is something that, um, you know, I've really benefited from and um, really enjoy um, doing like with and for folks that I'm in community with. Um, you know, resistance give me give me a lot of hope, um, particularly in our students. And uh, that you know they are like their chops are getting so strong, <laughs> and uh, some of it just makes you know our work very difficult. Um, but it makes me so proud to see um, just the level of depth to their analysis and how much that they are really pushing our institutions to move to that place of possibility. You know, what does a campus look like where folks don't have to experience harm? And how do we create that? How do we envision that? What we need, right? And to even just be 
in the spirit of those questions uh, gives me so, so much hope. Um, and then just my everyday joys. Um, you know, today is my wedding anniversary. So um, oh, I celebrate and, um, you know, through it all, you know, there is love. And, um, and so, I, you know, I think that's true in my house, but also, you know, just true in so many communities that I'm connected to. Great, thank you. Shruti, what about you? Yeah, um, so I'll tell a quick story. My, uh, a colleague of mine and a dear friend of mine has a four-year-old son and my wife had gone, my wife's name is Evie, and Evie had gone to drop off whatever thing we were dropping off that week. And um, after she left, Henry, his name is Henry, Henry went to his mom and said, um, mom, who's Evie's wife? And Teresa said, Shruti. And Henry said, okay, Shruti's Evie's wife. Okay. And then just went back to Paw Patrol. And it was like, that story has just stuck with me in that, like, if I had had that as a kid, if I had had that, like, socialization at four, how much internalized, my internalized messaging would be different. Um, and I think about, like, my nieces, my nephews, Henry, and how hopefully our generation that has made a lot of mistakes is also really causing some healing and bringing healing in the next generation. Um, and I agree with Rob of just the resistance is hopeful. You know, we were, I was in St. Louis when Michael Brown was murdered and I'm in St. Louis now seeing Black Lives Movement and to see corporations shifting their dollars, to see folks who have been silent for so long using their voices, um, we still have a lot of work to do, and I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. Great. Craig? Yeah, I mean, I, for me, definitely um, just echoing what they both said about the, so the community. So you know, Rob and Shruti are part of um, my joy in the world, um, and there's others um, that, uh, that have poured into me as well. Um, I, I echo that, you know, same thing, my, the, co the co colleagues. Um, that are having different kinds of conversations than we used to. Like that's, it's hopeful. Um, and um, I'm motivated by that. Um, and then my family. Um, so just grateful for um, the love that I have in my life and grateful for um, the work I get to do. And um, yeah, so it just keeps me getting out of bed and showing up. All right. Well, thank you all very much. I appreciate you taking time. I know um, we're all in the middle of figuring things out and the fact that you're able to take some time and spend with us, I really appreciate. Um, just a reminder, the title of the book is Identity, Conscious Supervision and Student Affairs, Building Relationships and Transforming Systems. And I really hope if you're listening to this and you heard the energy and the positivity behind the conversation that comes through in the text, then I hope you'll take some time and consider it and use it in your work. So, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA and we thank them for their support. Additionally, this show would not be possible without producer Erica Lee. So much gratitude to you, Erica. My name is Michelle Botcher. It's been a pleasure to host this episode and have a beautiful day. <laughs>